0: Good to have everyone here tonight. We're looking at Proverbs today, chapter 24, Proverbs chapter 24. We've had a blessed day today, haven't we? And we thank God for everything he has done. Talking about the bee tonight. On Sunday nights, we've been going through a series. Last week, we did the turkey vulture, the vulture. A week before, we did the flea. And uh, people have been enjoying it. Tonight, we're going to look at the bee one of God's little creatures. Uh, Over a thousand different critters mentioned in the Bible. We're not going to have a series for however many years that would last. I've just chosen ten, and we're on number eight, and we have two more to go, and then I don't know what we're going to do, but God will guide as we trust Him to look at another series of some type. God's wisdom is sweeter than honey. Look at Proverbs 24, stand when you find it, verses 13 and 14. It says, My son, eat thou honey, because it is good, and the honeycomb which is sweet to thy taste. So shall the knowledge of wisdom be unto thy soul, when thou hast found it. Then there shall be a reward, and thy expectation shall not be cut off. Let's pray. God bless us. As we look at your little creature, the bee, we're thankful for your creatures, Lord, and what they provide for us, and the bee's another creature that provides plenty. Lord, we thank you for your wonderful creation and how we see design in everything you do. We thank you, God, for giving us your word, which mentions the bee and other creatures we've looked at. Blessed now, hide me behind the cross in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. God's wisdom, it says, is sweeter than honey. Honey is mentioned 50 times in your Bible. The bee is only mentioned four times. Honey was a sign of blessing. Remember, Israel was looking for a land that would flow with milk and honey. You know the verse. Men of God enjoyed it. Remember, Samson in 1 Samuel 14 and others. It was no doubt in Eden. It's compared to deep biblical truth in Psalm 19, in Psalm 119, and in Revelation chapter 10 verse 10, compared with deep biblical truth. It was the diet of the prophets, Matthew 3, 4, John the Baptist ate locusts and honey. The Bible talks about honey from the rock in Deuteronomy 32, 13, and Psalm 81, 16. And while we know physically that's talking about the children of Israel finding a beehive and finding honey, many applications have been made and preached over the years. Honey from the rock, talking about the sweetness from the Lord, and because He is the rock. And so there are parallels there. It's compared to wisdom in our text today, and it's irresistible. The Bible said you can eat too much of it. And if you eat too much, you're going to get sick, according to Proverbs 25. Look at 25, 16, and 27. Hast thou found honey? Eat so much as is sufficient for thee, lest thou be filled therewith, and vomit it. (laughs) And then verse 27. It is not good to eat much honey. So for men to search their own glory is not glory, but it's not good to eat too much honey. I know when I was a kid, I'd go to my grandmother's house. My mother never let us have candy. We'd have a scoop and a half of ice cream at night after supper, not two scoops, a scoop and a half. That was mom. And then we'd go to my grandmother's house, and I mean, we had everything in our disposal. There was big things of candy all over, circus peanuts and caramels and just all kinds of stuff. And I would just all day long eat. I mean, why not? It's there. And uh, I'd eat enough. I was fed up after every every time I went to grandma's house but I would get sick. I'd get a bellyache because I ate too much of it. And we know that you can eat too much sweets, and that's not what I'm really talking about today. But we're going to talk for a few moments about the bees and how they speak of God's handiwork. Bees have three eyes. They have three sets of 12 scales, 36 scales. Their body's comprised of three parts. There's three barbs in their horn. They're born in threes. Three, nine, twelve, fifteen, they take three days to hatch. They stay in the cell three days and the hive three days because God makes everything according to order. We've learned that as we study this series, right? God makes everything in a perfect order. An average colony consists of thirty to 60,000 bees. Only a few drones, males, and thousands of workers, females. There's got to be an application there. Uh, The females do the work. Only the perfect female queen is able to mate. She lays 1,500 to 2,000 eggs daily. Wow, what a job. She lays the fertilized ones in small worker cells and the unfertilized eggs in large drone cells. Who taught her to do this? Or should we say who taught the first bee to do this? Now the world will say Mother Nature, but I'll say Father God. All right, God created that little critter. Mother Nature didn't have a thing to do with it. God did. And so Father God taught this first one. The bee guards the hive from the seventh to the 21st day. Then they work the field. What does the Bible say the field is? The field is the world. That's what Scripture says in Matthew. And so the bee goes out into the world, and the bee works, according to Matthew 13, 38. The field is the world. God does not use people in the field who are not first ready to fight on the home front. You know, I learned a long time ago when I was a young guy in church, and I was active in our high school and then college group, and finally it got right with the Lord. And I came down, went to Bible college and later seminary. But I remember the first church I got involved in, I was very active and very involved. I was doing everything. They asked me to be a youth pastor, and I was visiting every week here in Rossville, knocking on all kinds of doors uh, and, and teaching Sunday school and, and, and doing youth activities. And I was doing all this stuff and still going to school and still working full time and doing all this stuff. And you know what happened? God called me to go to the mission field, <laughs> called me to preach. Had I not been doing the little things for God, I don't know that he'd ever called me. But I believe that when we're busy about uh, doing what God would have us to do in a lay role, I mean lay leadership role, not necessarily called of God, but I believe that then God begins to work on us and calls us. And so here we find the bee. Now the Bible tells us the bee in Deuteronomy 144 chases away the enemy. What, what application can we, we apply to that? They protect the hive and chase the enemy. The Bible says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Too many people entertain his thoughts. God's been blessing us. I think tonight's another blessing. If we're not careful, the devil will raise his ugly head and start something here because he always does. Be aware of it and rebuke him with the word of God. And you know what? He will run He's afraid of the word. He knows he's doomed and he hates to hear it. Quote it. Mention it to him. Quote scripture. Use the sword of the spirit. What did Jesus do? I mean, the devil actually tempts Jesus. How did Jesus get rid of him? Quoted scripture. And we go all the way back, way back in Genesis. What did he say to Eve? Are you sure God said that? And he puts doubts about the word. The word of God is true. The Word of God is accurate. It's a sword of the Spirit. But resist Him. Bees chase the enemy. The Bible says in Psalm 118, they can pass about. They encircle. They watch over the hive. And uh, don't ever mess with a beehive. The wrong time time of day, you'll just get torn up. Judges tells us bees swarm. Boy, when a bee sounds the alarm, he's got helpers coming, and they're going after who or whatever it is that's bothering the hive. We ought to be like that. We ought to be like that with our family. Our home's the most important institution that we have. Did you know that? More important than the church, more important than the church. Sometimes I know people that are so active in their church, they don't spend any time with their kids or their wives. Don't be like that. The home is number one. Thank God for the church, but we need to be protecting the hive. The larvae are fed 1,300 times a day. I don't know how a bee can open its mouth that much. But the first queen is born, and that queen destroys all the other queens. Now, I mentioned something that probably speaks well of Our Ladies, but that, that sounds rough. That queen kills all the other queens. Uh, we find that in the Bible with monarchs who would kill their own children to protect their own throne. And so the queen is like that. When the scouts go out, they have a certain flight pattern. I found this quite interesting. When they find flowers nearby, they'll come back and they'll fly in a circle to let all the bees know they found some pollen. And all the bees will follow it and they'll all go into the flowers and get the pollen. But if they find flowers a great distance away, scientists tell us they fly a little differently. They fly more in a, in a figure eight pattern. That's like, what? And I'm reading this stuff and just interested to see that. That they are very good communicators. And that makes their hive successful. The scouts communicate when there's danger. When they find pollen, they communicate. And they all work together in battle. They all work together in feeding the colony. And that's such a good type for us as a church to learn about working together to nurture one another. We are one in Christ. Jesus' last prayer in John 17 was that we would be in unity, that we would be one. That's the last prayer he prayed. Now, it's not called the Lord's Prayer, but some would like to call it the Lord's Prayer because that's an awesome prayer. He's about to die in John 17, and he prays. And he prays for us, future believers, he says, that we would be one. And we have how many splits in this area of churches? One church split after another? I was laughing, my pastor, Dr. Wearsby, was good friends with my pastor, and he was at our church every summer. And Dr. Wearsby came, my pastor, took him for a ride and said, you got to see this. And we they drove down the road a few blocks from our church, and it said um, Church of God, number one, and about three more pieces of property, Church of God, number two. Number one and two had a split. And so right on the same street, they built Church of God, number two. And I don't want to pick on the Church of God folks, Because the Baptists have monopolized on church splits, I think. And we've got 800 Baptist churches in this area. Like, we need another Baptist building. And people just don't know how to have unity. We split and we fight over things that are not important. Most church splits are about things that happen on a very small scale and people blow it out of proportion. Very seldom do you hear about a church split because... Some people in the church didn't believe in the virgin birth. I've not heard of a split like that around here. But I've heard of splits about people fighting over what color the carpet should be. It's sad. The bee teaches us something. They work together. The only, when the uh, first queen is born, destroys all other queens. The old queen takes thousands of her followers and leaves. And uh, a hive lives for several years. And then a new hive will begin But scouts come in and fly in a circle, we've already explained that, and they'll point their tail a certain way to actually let them know what direction that the enemy is in or the flowers are in. It's fascinating. And again, as I said, uh, the, the Heavenly Father taught the bees this, one pound of wax it takes one pound of wax to have 20, it takes to have 22 pounds of honey. You get one pound of wax. Without bees, there'd be no apples and no pears and no peaches and cherries and plums or almonds. Without uh, wax, we wouldn't have furniture polish, candles, ladies, cosmetics. One cosmetic company said they use a million pounds of wax per year for makeup. Wow, they say a little paint never hurts the barn, but that's a lot of paint. Amen. And so we learn so much from bees. We learned about the field and the devil and 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 so many things, how they protect the home, how unity is so important. Their hard work is to be admired, and they are hard workers. They live their life. It's all about working. I find in my own life, when I don't do something for the Lord and I don't stay active for the Lord, I'm very unhappy. I have to do something all the time. Not just studying scripture, but reaching out, witnessing, or whatever God has for me in that day. And those are the best days of my life. When I just sit and watch TV, I'll enjoy a show now and then, but there's that feeling of, should I be doing this? I mean, life is short, and we've got to get about to be about God's business. Now, I thank you. I didn't even point out uh, that we have PowerPoint tonight for the first time in, in a while. And so we're gonna go through that. I'll just let them. Uh, I think how many slides have you got left, Kenneth? About ten left, right? Three left? I can't see. He's get behind that dark glass. Go to the next slide. I don't even know what I have up there. It's been so long since I typed that out. All right, here we go. These last three. Um I've do I'm doing a play on words as I've done often. <laughs> we're gonna talk about different kinds of bees, all right? The first bee is the wannabe Christian, the wannabe. And again, a play on words. But if I were to ask a show of hands of how many people would like to be great Christians, do you know every hand would go up? I remember as a kid hearing my pastor preach, and he was just a great, great preacher. And he's, you'll hear him on Moody sometimes. I've said that so much. He would speak at Winona Lake and Keswick Conference, and he came down to Tennessee Temple in the sixties, but he was just so great to listen to. And I admire him, and I, I didn't, I didn't, ever think I was going to be a preacher. But I used to think, I wish I knew the Bible like he did. I was a wannabe. I wanted to be like him. I wanted to be like Jesus. I hear stories about great men of the Bible. I'd like to be like those men. I'd like to be like Daniel in the fiery furnace. I'd like to be like... So many different Bible characters and so many great preachers that I, I know. I love, uh, I love Chuck Swindoll. He's one of my favorites. I love to hear him speak. I'd like to be more like him. You know what that takes? A lot of work. A lot of dedication. The wannabe Christian really wants to do things. I mean, they want to conquer the world. They, they want to be great Christians. They want to be able to teach or preach or sing. The problem is, a lot of times we want to be something, but we're not willing to put the time into it. You know, if you're going to be what you ought to be, be the best that you can be. Ecclesiastes 9, 10 says, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might. You know, I, I think every time I preach, I go and listen to myself, and I'm upset with this or that. I do wrong, and I think, I've got to get better. I've got to study more. I've got to practice my preaching more. I'll practice and preach. And I used to preach in front of a mirror. That was rough. And, uh, and, and I, then I try to really be better at delivery, and then I, I get up, and I, I do a bad job sometimes, and I think, I've, I've got to work harder. I want to be the best. And we ought to want to be the best, you don't see it, but there's a little bug on my nose. Talking about bees, I guess something got jealous. Jealousy's a problem in the church, you know. And, uh, and I, just, I just want to do a better job at everything I do. When I was an athlete, I wanted to be the best person on the court or in the gym or in the, on the field. And I really worked hard at it, but sometimes I haven't worked hard. I remember in high school track, I quit the track team because I didn't like all the running. I could high jump six feet and broke a middle school high jump record in eighth grade of five feet. But who wants to go run? The coach came to a house, knocked on the door. So what are you doing? I said, I don't want to run track. Well, I said, I don't like all the running. I just want to high jump. Well, we want you to get in shape. We want you, you're part of a relay team. I didn't want to be part of a relay team. That meant running. He started the first day. We said, all right, we're going to run to the golf course and back. That was five miles. I didn't want to run five miles and back. So I haven't always been willing to work hard. But in God's ministry, in God's work, we have to be the best that we can be, the best Sunday school teachers, the best usher, the best at whatever God has you do. Work hard at it. Don't just be a wannabe Christian. Be a a committed Christian. Then we have the ought to be Christian. Read you some scriptures. And again, it's a play on words. I understand that. First of all, The Bible says the Holy Spirit will give you what you ought to say. The Holy Spirit will give you what you ought to say. Luke 13, 14 says men ought to work. That should be preached across our land, shouldn't it? Everybody's wanting a free check. I turn my phone on in the morning and I look at all the headlines and the very first thing that always pops up on Google is, when's the next stimulus check coming? I thought, what have we gotten to? I remember my dad, I was just a young kid. My dad lost his job. And uh, and someone said, well, you can draw unemployment, Bob. I'm not taking any free handouts. And he wouldn't take it. And he was unemployed for two years, and it was tough on our family. He had little odd jobs until he found a good job. And one time at Thanksgiving, we didn't have anything to eat. We didn't know what's going to happen. There's a knock on the door, and people from the church came over with all this stuff. Candy was in there, so I have a problem already. Uh, uh, but it was just wonderful. But my dad was gracious for that, but he went back and worked. He always believed in hard work. I remember our driver was not what it's cracked up to be. It was all cracked up, really. And he took a sledgehammer out there, and here's my dad in his 40s, breaking all this concrete up. He had dug a trench in the back behind our fence and carried these in a wheelbarrow and dumped all these chunks of concrete and Covered it up with dirt and put a new driveway in. I was like, man, my dad's a hard worker. But he instilled that in his sons. My brothers are hard workers. And um, when I was a meat cutter, I was a very hard-working meat cutter. I got that from my dad. You know, and and I, I remember how he would not take anything. Men ought to work, the Bible said. John thirteen fourteen. we ought to wash one another's feet. We ought to wash one another's feet. That means humble ourselves, serve one another. Now, the Primitive Baptists believe that's an ordinance and they actually have foot washing in their services. There's nothing wrong with that, but we don't travel with bare feet and sandals anymore, so it's not necessary. There are probably other things we could do in our culture to humble ourselves and serve one another, but we ought to wash one another's feet. And if that means to help one another out of a car, or cut someone's grass in church who's sick, or, or carry a bag for someone who's elderly, we ought to serve one another. And they ought to be Christian. The Bible says in Acts 5.39, we ought to obey God rather than man. We ought to obey God rather than man. We dwelt on that last week. We're not going to talk about it again. Acts 19.36 says you ought to be quiet. You know, too many times we open our mouth I said this, and you've heard this, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. and We ought to learn to listen and not to all open our mouth. Then it says in Acts 29.35, uh, Romans 15.1, we ought to support the weak. We ought to support the weak. And ought to be Christian. We ought to support the weak. That means people who are down and out, poor, hungry, we ought to help them. Colossians 4, 4, and 6 say that we ought to know how to speak to every man, how to answer every man. One of the sad things in our, in our realm is Christians don't know how to speak up. We don't have our apologetics down. Oh, that's a big word, but we don't know how to defend the faith. Someone will ask us something. We don't know where it is in the Bible. We don't know how to answer them. We'll wait and ask our pastor Sunday. While I love the questions... We ought to ask the questions. That's what we do at church. We learn. We ought to be in our Bible at home studying. You don't see it, but it's, it's constantly nagging me, this fly. We ought to be constantly in the Word so we know what to say to people. What do you say to someone when they say, well, I believe, I don't believe the Genesis account of creation. I believe it took millions of years each one of those days. Do you have an answer for that? I mean, some good Christian people believe that. I don't. I don't believe God had a problem creating the world in six days because he's God. <laughs> and the evening and the morning were the first. And the word yam, every other place in Scripture, means a day. While there are times the word day can mean something else, we talk about we're living in a strange day. We're not talking about a 24-hour period. But in the context of Genesis, the word day is clearly a 24-hour period. My point is when someone asks you, do you have an answer? When someone says they believe that, you know, we came from monkey, do you have an answer? Do you have an answer? And so we have to learn to answer people. Sometimes someone will ask you some random question that doesn't make any sense to you, and you're like, what are they asking that for? A lot of times they're not actually wanting an answer to that question. They're searching for answers to life. People are very sad. There's a lot of emptiness out there. And the Christian has lost his strength in the world because of our stupidity, bad testimonies, bad attitudes. When a Christian goes to work, he ought to be the best Christian, the best worker at work. You ought to be the best tipper in the restaurant. You you ought to be the sweetest person in the grocery store line. You ought to be the most courteous driver. Oh, preacher, don't go there. Yeah. We amen to the preacher until he hits home, you know. But that's that's so true. We ought to be better at everything we do. The world looks at us, and they're disappointed. They're disappointed. They hear of our splits and our fights, and they see our attitudes and our selfishness. Folks, we have to be different in the world. Christmas isn't all about presents and things, we've made it to be that, and we've jumped right in, and it become just as materialistic as the world, and we ought to be different. We ought to be different. You see, when you get a real perspective on Christianity, and understand we're just here temporarily, as I've said so many times, our life's just a speck in time. All this junk doesn't matter. The car you want won't make you any happier. Three years later, you'll want another car. Contentment is godliness, isn't it? We talked about that recently. But we're so wrapped up in this world, and we ought to be different. We ought to give heed to what we've learned, Hebrews 2.1 says. James 4.18, we ought to say, Lord willing. Too many times we take things for granted. James says, don't even say what you're going to do tomorrow or the next day. Don't plan your life out so much because you don't know that day will even come. And you don't know what's going to happen. I've talked about divine interference, how I've had plans sometimes and nothing worked the way I wanted it to work, you know. I take a trip and I've got to be at a church to speak or something and I plan and I plan I got it all worked out and I get on the highway and I get 100 miles from home and there's some sort of road construction. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, this is messing my whole day up. <laughs> so I get out and scream at the workers, get working! I'm in a hurry! Of course, I don't do that, but you feel that way. And you realize, and you get mad and nothing's working your way. And like the time I was preaching in West Virginia, I've told you that story. I got out there all sweaty and my kid had vomited all over me and church has already started. And I'm the speaker. God, what are you doing this to me for? I, I don't know Why? But God's plan isn't always the same as my plan. And he knows what he's doing. There's been times I've arrived at a church to speak and had this big plan, and something happened to where I had to change everything, the whole message, and everything changed. Something just divine interference. And don't, don't say what you're going to do tomorrow. And I'm not saying not to plan. Obviously, Scripture teaches we ought to plan. Scripture teaches we ought to budget. Scripture teaches we ought to go to work. I mean, we have our plans. I plan tomorrow to go to work in the morning. You know, I could head that way and not ever make it. I don't know. Are you willing to say, Lord, it's your day, and I'll do what you have me to do? We ought not to take things for granted. John 3.16 says we ought to lay down our not 16. We ought to lay down, First John 3, 16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So all these ought to be things we should do. And a lot of want to be Christians, a lot of ought to be Christians, but the best Christian is the busy bee. I'll read you some more verses, and you'll say this doesn't make any more sense than the first two points you made, but I told you it was fun as a play on words. The busy bee Christian. Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Be steadfast, be consistent, be the same. It's hard to praise the Lord when things are going bad, but we have to be unmovable, always abounding. Ruth Walker, one of our piano players in Panama, I hit a home run and came around and said, praise the Lord. And I was going back to the dugout and she said, would you have praised the Lord if he caught it? And I thought, well, what's my music lady doing here anyway? (laughs) But she's right. You know? I mean, we don't like to praise the Lord when it's not going our way. Can you praise the Lord when it's not going your way? Let me tell you, when it's not going your way, it's going His way. And that's the test of your walk with God. That's the test. I remember my daughter, who needs a lot of prayer. She's struggling in her walk, but I remember when she had this cholesteatoma, and uh, the doctor said all her bone had all been eaten away, and you know he had to drill a hole. He said now she's going to have an ear hole. You could put quarters in it. You just I want you to be prepared. And I remember seeing that hole in her head, and I remember just sobbing. And I was so upset. Why would God do this to my little girl, who was about eight years old at the time? And I was not happy with God. I still, to this day, don't know the why. Why did that happen? Why did that happen? Why does some wonderful family have a child born, and you realize, oh boy, the child's not right? And now they're going to raise this child with all these problems. Why? And I don't know why, but I'll tell you this. When we all get to heaven, we'll know why. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. When that child's running the streets of gold, it'll be worth it all because God's going to get glory and forever and ever and ever we will thank God for those trials we went through down here. It's hard to understand that. It's so easy to praise the Lord when you get the home run. When you make the winning basket. When you get the new car, oh, I'm so happy. Been a great week for me. I got a new car. But the trials work patience. And where the Bible says, add to your faith, and it lists all those things, and the very last one is patience. The Greek word is the word choreograph. Like a choir man will add to his choir. He'll say, We need a bass singer. And I heard someone out there. And I'll go and can you come and sing bass? I heard you sing. You can, you can sing bass. He'll add to his choir. We're supposed to add to our faith all these things. And you know what the final one is, the crowning one? Patience. Patience. Oh, I know I'm not there yet. I know I'm not ready to meet Jesus yet. I'm not patient enough. A lot of things I haven't understood in my life, but I have to praise the Lord anyway. I have to praise the Lord, and I, I, I've, I've at times—I don't want to tell you all my faults, but I've told you so many over the last year, year and couple months I've been here. Another one of my faults is I've—I've I've always been upset that I wasn't as smart as some of these guys that can go in and make A's in calculus and all this stuff. Not me. I was barely getting through. And when I went to college and I I took Greek, and I remember crying. I just couldn't get it. I took Hebrew when I was in my 50s. Oh, that killed me. I'd go back to my professor every week and say, can you go over it again? And he was so patient on his grease board to help me to get through. And I've always wished I was a brilliant man so I could just, you know, know the languages so well. And for me, every week, it's a lot of work for me to understand everything the text says. Some guys can get up and read their Greek Testament and get up and expound on it. I got to study all week. Got to study all week. It's not easy for me. It's a lot of work. I love the work. But I've always wished I was a brilliant guy. My brother Bob was very smart. He went to Grand Rapids Baptist, and he made A's in Greek. And I was like, made me sick that he could just do that like that. And I'm crying, struggling to just get through the class. But you know what? In each of our lives, we think of things where we don't feel we measure up. I had a good friend, George. Five foot two, George is with the Lord. He always joked about being so short. He always wanted to be tall. And when we'd go out to dinner, he'd say to people, We're twins. He's talking about a movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito. And then he and then he would say he would say, uh, what what was it he always said? Like he was the The honored Schwarzenegger of the two, you know, he would say, this is my little, my little twin brother or something like that. And people would laugh at it. And he always joked. He had, he had a good nature about, but I had another guy. He was on my staff. We had a Christian school and he was my principal and he was also, uh, limited in his height and he hated it. And when George left, I was in the pulpit. I didn't have anyone to pick on because I always picked on George about You know, George plays miniature golf and all those jokes I would do. And I would have him come up for testimony, and then I'd put a little stool, and everybody would laugh. And then I'd step on the stool, so I'd look really tall, and he'd look. And we just had so much fun. Then the the new guy came, and I'd do jokes on him. He did not like it. He, He had a problem with being small. Let me just say this. I didn't like being tall when I was young, but be content with how God has made you. God's made you the way. Don't be bothered by someone who's slimmer, you know, or wealthier. God has you right where He wants you. You need to trust Him. And I've gotten way off the subject. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Be diligent in business. Be not slothful in business. Be quiet and do your own business. First Thessalonians four eleven. You ever want to quote that to someone? Be quiet and do your own business. I must be about my father's business. What is our father's business? And that's what I want to close with. The Great Commission is given five times in the New Testament. Five times. And each time the Greek grammar points out a different thing about the Great Commission. In John sixteen fifteen, it's a command, a direct command. Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. When you look at that in the language, and I know you don't understand the language, and I'm not expecting you to, but I'm just here and you know, you know you can trust me on that. It's a direct command. There's no if, ands, or bouts about it. Every one of us is supposed to preach. You've heard me say women should be preachers? Absolutely. Because that word preach is the word crusoe, which means to proclaim. We're supposed to proclaim. We're supposed to evangelize the lost. We're not to be pastors. It's not my point. We're all supposed to preach. So in Mark 16, 15, he gives the direct command go and preach. Now let me go to a few other passages. Matthew 28, and you know this one. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and following. We'll be done here in a moment. In fact, I'm overtime already. It's after six, and I'm usually done by six. What happened? Did I ramble that long? Well, I'll go faster. Turn to Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Uh, that, verse 19, go ye into all the world. And the Greek grammar here is actually while you're going. While you're going. We, 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 call, we call this in, in Matthew an assuming participle. In other words, he assumes we're going. While you are going into all the world, teach all nations. Now, the word teach in verse 19 and the word teaching in verse 20 are different words. In verse 19, this word teach is actually a word translated make disciples. It's a different word. We are to make followers, imitators of our lives. We're supposed to imitate Christ, and we're supposed to make disciples of people. And then the word teaching is a different word, teaching all nations. So we're supposed to, excuse me, teaching them to observe all things. So our commission is not just to win people, but it is to teach them all things, and to make disciples out of them. Teaching is more than just speaking to people. It's teaching them hands-on. Let's go and witness to this person. Teach someone how to witness. Let's help this neighbor. Teach someone how to help a neighbor. And so it's an assuming participle. So here, here is Matthew 28, the strategy. He says, teach all things. I love all the alls here. All power, verse 18. All nations, verse 19, all things in all ways. Then we go quickly to uh, Luke, and in Luke we have here uh, the fact he says, and repentance and remission of sins, and I'm hurrying because I'm out of time, but the context of the gospel is repentance and remission. When we go preach the gospel, we have a definite message, teaching people to repent. So you have to teach people they're lost. You teach them to repent from their sin and the remission of sins, Luke tells us in Luke 24. That's another place a great commission is given. And then we know in John 20, 21, Jesus says uh, for us to go just like he goes. As the father has sent me, so send I you. So the example is given there. Completely different. Now the example is given, so send I you. And then in Acts 1, 8, we have the geography. All power, dynamite's given unto me, all power is given to you. And he says to go into Jerusalem, the city, Samaria, the region, um, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, the region, Samaria, the whole area, and then all the world. So we're given all these things as we're given the gospel in all these places. And I rush through that. That I'll come back and maybe revisit that someday. Let's pray. God, thank you. Lord, we thank you that we have an opportunity to be a, a busy bee Protecting the home front, feeding our families and feeding our uh, believers the word of God and, and Lord, that we, we can, we can uh, be willing to work the field, go into all the world and be busy like the bee. Thank you for that little creature. We've learned from it as we learn from your word. Bless now in Jesus' name. Amen.